0: The Bane Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, a murder on the moon, the borders of science and science fiction, and the future of cybernetic warfare. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afsharirad. Today, we welcome Bain Assistant Editor Sean C.W. Korsgaard to the interviewer's chair here at the Bain Free Radio Hour. Sean wears many hats at the Bain office, and we're excited to have him help out here on the podcast. This week, he sat down with Editor Stephen Lawson and contributor Sean Patrick Hazlitt, Philip Kramer and Mona Lisa Foster to discuss the new anthology, Robo Soldiers. Thank you for your servos, which is out now in trade paperback and ebook formats. But first, the news. Head on over to Bain.com and check out this month's free fiction and nonfiction. First up is this year's Jim Bain Memorial Award winning story. Man on the Moon by Elaine Midco. The trip to the moon was truly once in a lifetime for Sasha Venditti. She'd saved nine years to get there. It was, in her opinion, worth every penny. But she soon finds her vacation cut short when Andrin Lamar Jr., son of one of her firm's biggest clients, gets himself into some serious trouble. Sasha thinks she can't possibly be the one to call. She's on the moon, right? But so it seems is Lamar. Now it will take all her wits and wiles to solve what may well be the first murder on the moon. And while you're on the site, check out Jim Beale's latest nonfiction article, Borders from the First Sumerians to the Last Starfighter. Our lives are circumscribed by borders, both man made and natural, from lines on a map to rivers and mountain ranges. In this month's free nonfiction article, Jim Beale looks at the concept of borders, beginning with the earliest city states and continuing into the present and on to the future, as he explores how borders have impacted science fiction literature. The lines have been drawn. That's Elaine Midco's Man on the Moon and Borders, From the First Sumerians to the Last Starfighter by Jim Beale, Both free to read right now at Bane.com. Michael Z. Williamson's Target Terror may clock in at over 700 pages, but we're sure it will leave you wanting more page-turning techno-thriller action. So for the month of June, we're offering ebook discounts on all our techno-thriller backlist titles, including Tom Kratman's Countdown series, John Ringo's Paladin of Shadows series, and the Dead Six books by Larry Correa and Mike Kupari. Details and a complete list of books are available at Bain.com. And that's it for the news.
2: Welcome listeners to the Bain Free Radio Show. I am Sean C.W. Korsgaard, junior editor and media manager here at Bain Books, hosting live and loud for the first time. And with us today, we have four of the contributors and the editor of our upcoming Robo Soldiers anthology. Joining us, we have Stephen Lawson, the editor, Sean Hello. Patrick Hasslett, one of the contributors and the editor of our Weird World War anthologies, Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa Foster, and Philip Kramer. So to start the show, gentlemen and lady, introduce yourselves to our listeners. Starting with you, Stephen.
3: Hi, I'm Stephen Lawson. Uh, this is my first anthology that I'm editing for Bain. I've written a couple of stories that they've published for the uh, Jim Bain Memorial Short Story Award. Um, I served five years in the Navy on three deployments. Uh, currently, I'm a major and a helicopter pilot for the Kentucky Army National Guard, actually flying tomorrow, so i got some planning to do right after this. Um, but happy to be here, happy to talk about whatever with you, Sean, and uh, I'll turn it over to you.
4: Sean? Oh, my my name is Sean Hazlett. I am a uh, editor of the Weird World War III and We World War IV anthologies. I have a story in Robo Soldiers called Manchurian. I'm an army veteran. I spent five years in the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment uh, fighting like the Soviets, now Russians. And I am consistently appalled at their battlefield performance thus far.
5: Philip. I'm Philip Kramer. I'm a biomedical researcher, at Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center in North Carolina. Um, I've been doing a biomedical research in the, the field of aging and muscle metabolism for quite a while. Um, I've been also doing writing most of my life. Um, I, I met uh, Stephen uh, back in 2017 during uh, the International Space Development Conference, um, where I received the grand prize for the Bain Memorial Short Story Award. And yeah, that was my first introduction to uh, Bain and all of the great work that they're doing. And really, the, what attracted to me, uh, me to uh, that award, as well as um, uh, contributing to this anthology, is their absolute, like, demand for hard sci-fi, and that's exclusively what I do, and I was happy to uh, be a part of it.
2: Happy to have you. And last but certainly never least, Mona Lisa.
6: Hi, I'm Mona Lisa Foster. I'm a a writer of uh, science fiction, mostly space opera. I've been in several anthologies now, uh, different genres. Um, My claim to fame is that I am a naturalized American citizen, and I came here when I was young from Romania, I have a a degree in physics and I've worked uh, from everything from engineering to radiation oncology.
2: So with backgrounds like that, not surprisingly, Robo Soldiers has a very eclectic mix of some stories. So I guess I'd just like to ask you each about what inspired your stories, if that's all right. So Stephen, you did not contribute a story, but putting this together, what was your inspiration?
3: Uh, So second to last story, you'll actually find my name under it. It's called Nightingale. Um, So yeah, uh, the idea for the anthology, actually there's a subtitle on it that says, thank you for your servos. And I just get like weird wordplay in my head sometimes, and it turns into other ideas. I had this idea for like a novel about like this washed up like you know, burned out combat veteran robot that's maybe missing some parts and some components from his combat time. He's been demilled and some little girl adopts him and they go save the world together on some mission to fight human trafficking or something like that. And I I thought about the idea more, like I spent a couple days on it and I'm like, you know, you could put that title on a lot of things and maybe it could be like an anthology by veterans about like combat robotics. And it just kind of evolved from there. Um, I don't think this would have happened without Sean Haslett because he's done a lot of groundwork on other anthologies and he's kind of coached me on this stuff so I said hey Sean how do you approach this kind of thing he sent me a, uh, a proposal template that I, I sent to Tony once I had it all filled out and then I just really had to to find authors to fill it in um, I, I sought primarily veterans but I had friends like Mona Lisa and Philip. Uh, and and Martin that are that are very smart on some other things uh, like medicine and and programming and things like that. So um, I think I rounded out well with uh, like three uh, civilian contributors and the rest are veterans. I asked them to write inside their MOS's or specialties uh, or ratings, and they did that. And I think it's it's pretty well rounded out based on that concept.
2: And before I go to our other contributors, thank you for correcting me. Tell us a little bit about Nightingale. Uh,
3: So Nightingale is is kind of a story that I wanted to write for a long time. And I had this idea of, so my story that won the Jim Bain Memorial Short Story Award is it's called Homunculus. It was published in 2018. And it's about this little teeny tiny robot that's piloted remotely, um, which is kind of far-fetched based on um, quantum entanglement used as communication uh, so I didn't go quite that far with the science fiction aspect of this. Um, I, I have little AI powered robots that are going to save a guy, but they're lo- basically little teeny tiny commandos that can go um, enable self rescue. So they've got equipment strapped to them, um, like guns and lockpicks and saws and things like that and explosive charges so they can go rescue this guy. Uh, the guy that they're rescuing is actually their, their programmer and designer. He's also kind of a, a spy um, and his wife has basically lured him as helicopter pilot. Um, and, you know, she's, she influences him in a number of ways uh, and uses him to go rescue her husband. Um, so that's basically the plot of the story uh, for Nightingale. Nightingale is, um, it's a reference that he gives her to Florence Nightingale because she's a flight surgeon. Um, so she's, she's a very resourceful woman. I'll just put it that way. Um, The story has a lot of layers. Uh, Their last name is Moreau. So it's kind of an uplifting um, or uplift. I can't remember the term uh, for elevating another creature into kind of a human status. So they're kind of doing that with the artificial intelligence and giving them extra abilities that they wouldn't have otherwise. Um, So there are layers to it. Uh, Nobody's going to get all of the layers, but there are a lot of them there.
2: Sean, tell us a little bit about Manchurian, although given your next Weird World anthology, I'm a little afraid to ask where this one goes.
4: So if you enjoy Russian prison tattoos, Chinese super geniuses, and uh, CRISPR super viruses, uh, and rare earth metals, you'll enjoy Manchurian. So it's a novelette, and the idea originally came from a presentation at a conference called DEFCON 19, I think it was. And it was given by the chief medical officer. Yes, they have a chief medical officer at the Intel Corporation. And what he talked about was sort of some of the things that you can do with CRISPR uh, weapons. And so I did some research and it turns out that there's a specific gene that codes to the kind of the Han Chinese phenotype. So uh, if you could, you could literally today engineer a weapon that did not that affected everyone in the world, except ninety six to ninety seven percent of uh, folks with Han Chinese genes. So what the Chinese do is they unleash this virus through a proxy, which is a Pakistan, you know, Pakistani scientist. Because what the impact of the gene is, it targets your skin. So if you know, if your children go outside, their um, their skin is you know burned essentially. so you've crippled uh, m- much of the world from the sense of uh, economic potential and things like that. So that's kind of how it starts. The main protagonist has a daughter who has this crippling illness and you know there's been several wars with China. Russia is fractured into several different nation states and there's you know a, a keen interest in a Rare earth metal mine that the Russians actually are, you know, have been building for several years. At at the same uh, time, the world is kind of the, the the Americans have gone all in on cybernetics, and the Chinese have gone all in on genetics. So it is a uh, kind of a, a formulation or a projection of what that might look like in twenty seventy.
2: Now, Philip. Tell us about Operation
1: Meltwater.
5: Yes, this was a a really fun story to write. And I I detailed a little bit of my process on my blog. And if you're interested in reading that, it's at uh, pakramer.com. You know, it was funny when I was asked to to do this uh, story or uh, write a contribution, I went back and forth. For a good like 11 of the 12 months that I was given to write this thing. It was like really the last month, but I did all the writing um, and a lot of that was because, you know, I really wanted to one make this kind of reflective of some area of my, my specialty um, two I wanted to um, try to be as original as I possibly could be, but I didn't so like, like uh, you were saying earlier, I'm, I'm not a member of the military, never have been. Um, I didn't want to write from that point of view so much because I, I felt like I was the outsider, but it, it wasn't kind of the end of the road there for me because scientists have their role to play too in, in uh, warfare. You know, there's a lot of people making the, the tools by which, you know, war is, is made. So, um, so, and there's been a lot of history of You know scientists with their tools um, their inventions used for war when they really didn't want it to be and so I thought well okay I'll make my point of view from um, uh, the scientists um, of the world and so I chose kind of an an older scientist who who, um, had this idea of sending a probe to Enceladus one of the icy moons of Saturn and he got this great NASA grant uh, to to work with uh, to work with his uh, scientific instruments company and build this great device that would go to the go to the, um, the moon, and yeah, he was really excited to you know go through all phases of this and build a prototype. And the story starts when they're out on the um, East Antarctic ice sheet and they're testing the prototype, and he's kind of with a few NASA engineers there to to help him, you know, put the prototype through its paces. And it's not until um, he's there and running those tests that he he realizes the NASA engineers aren't who they seem. Um, They're actually uh, members of, you know, their covert mission specialists. They're there to kind of take his technology and use it for, you know, more nefarious purposes, I guess. Um, and this is kind of a future where, uh, you know, I had to do a lot of background research on, you know, the, the geopolitical landscape on this, but I did come across several articles that described, you know, what Russia might do uh, following the end of the Antarctic Treaty, uh, which is set to expire in 2048. And one of the some of those articles are like, well, they they have all these ice breakers, they have all of these um, ice capable vehicles. They're not going to retire those, you know. They especially with you know uh, warming and stuff, and a lot of the Antarctic ice melting. They might put that to use in Antarctica, and if they controlled both poles, then they would have really the mobility advantage in any war. So I went along with that. You know, this is post 2040 a Russia has kind of annexed the entire continent and really the US is doing everything that it can to get them off because uh, they foresee war coming and if Russia holds the polls, then that will not end well for the US. So yeah, it's really the scientists uh, um, effort to, you know, not necessarily stop but prevent the consequences of uh, the the military uh, engineers from using his creation, his NASA probe, um, for really destructive means.
2: A different kind of Cold War.
5: Mona mm. Lisa, tell us
2: about resilience.
6: So resilience came out of what was happening at the time that I was writing this, with the with the pandemic going on, and um, since I had worked um, with clinical trials. One of the more interesting aspects of working with that was the difference between what a patient perceived that they needed versus what we as researchers would sometimes provide for them. It, it wasn't always um, it wasn't always lined up. So I I started by writing about this this woman who had um, had some traumatic event happen to her, and the way that uh, they were treating her was with a, a brain implant to help her with her PTSD. And this implant would manifest as an intelligent agent that would basically talk her down when she was having one of these episodes. And it's about the failure of that intelligent agent to do its job because among other things, it, it, was, it was approaching it from uh, kind of this touchy feely, um, you know, women helping women overcome things by talking them out or saying, oh, everything will be all right. That doesn't always work for people. Sometimes you need to do other things that are a little bit more active um, and kind of fight back as it were, even if it's kind of a pretend fight back in order to get the kind of closure that you need. So that's um, that's kind of what was the seed for, for this particular story.
2: Now, one of the things I do love about Robo Soldiers as an anthology is that you have a wonderfully narrow theme yet managed to have such a strong variety of stories, even in the four we're discussing here. Did that surprise you to see the level of detail and variety among your contributors, Steven?
3: Uh, no, that's by design. Um, so I'd, I'd done a course that's called uh, ILE, is the old name for it, but it's the Command General Staff Officers course, uh, Common Core, uh, just like I completed it like the year before um, but we talk about all domain warfare, like sea, uh, land, air, cyber, and space. And I thought, I want to get into all of those. So who do I know that can write in all those domains? And people tackled all of them. Like, we've got orbital warfare, we've got lunar warfare. Um, and, and Philip t- tackled uh, Antarctic warfare. Um, I mean, you're talking about future treaties that expire, like the Outer Space Treaty. And uh, T.C. McCarthy got into that, too. So I knew people that could tackle each domain. I, um, And actually, Tony Weisskopf recommended Philip Purnell for the the naval angle. I could have gotten into that myself because I was enlisted, but he was a surface warfare officer and much more qualified to write naval strategy than I am, and he did a wonderful job with that. Um, So no, it's by design that we've got the the breadth of um, warfare domains that we do in the anthology.
2: And at least one connected thing to that, as much as I love the... uh... Thank you for your servos pun. Did it surprise you that uh, people did not come with a lot of these punny stories, but instead a lot of hard-hitting, ripping military science fiction that sometimes goes in some scary, heartwarming or exciting places?
3: Uh, also, doesn't surprise me at all because I didn't tell most of them what the subtitle was going to be until just before publication um, because I'm a very inherently paranoid person. I thought that's kind of funny. Like I could see somebody like making that a short story or something, and then I lose all my thunder. Um, so I, I didn't even tell him that part of it until much later. I just said, most of the titles for the emails were military robotics anthology. Um, so we went with that. Um, a couple of them are very dark. Uh, Sean uh, Haslett writes horror normally. Weston Osh writes horror normally. And those are some grisly, horrific stories. The people that I've, I've given uh, contributors copies to so far, I put little bookmarks in there and say, don't read this unless you're in the mood for horror, because it's pretty bloody. Um, uh, Mona Lisa's story is a little dark, but um, I really appreciate what she did with the healing process in that too. Uh, a couple of them are very funny. Uh, Richard Fox, his story is a little bit grim, but he's got a great running joke in there um that I, I don't want to ruin because i i was halfway through editing it and i realized what he was doing and i just i stopped and i laughed i was like i'm so stupid this is an obvious joke and it's very funny but i didn't appreciate it until i was almost done editing it um i think philip's story uh operation meltwater has a lot of uh good humor in it it's a fun story i think martin's story is a very fun story um today i go home which is it's a spin-off of his um It's in the same world as Today, I'm Carrie, which is his first novel. And then uh, Matt Wrighton's story at the beginning, Higher Ground, is a very fun story, too. So you got a mix. I mean, it's all flavors for all people kind of thing. You get a buffet of, uh, of flavors in the anthology.
2: And I guess to ask our three contributors, when you first heard the title and the subtitle, what was their reaction?
5: So I'll say that you know I'm always happy to hear a good pun, and so this was no different. I was I was not at all um, expecting it, but you know, knowing knowing Stephen, you know, it it made total sense. Um, Yeah, and my story being a little on the side of humor, I thought it went well.
6: I thought it was cute.
4: I think when they, once they read my story, I think they're going to think the joke's on them. (laughs) I will admit,
2: half the fun while doing the publicity for this book has been seeing the wide variety of reactions to everything from the title to the contributors list. (laughs) But with the release tomorrow, and for those of you listening to this in a few weeks, by RoboSoldiers, wherever fine books are sold, and also Amazon. I'm really excited to hear what people think of these stories, because it really does reflect the... There is sort of this nasty stereotype with military science fiction that it's all either just military fiction with lasers or somewhere between Starship Troopers, Hammer Slammers, just action and science fiction. And here you have a lot of not just variety, but really insightful, educated stories that tap into any number of futures where we could actually go into. And like I said, that variety we've seen from our writers is kind of incredible. I guess as four authors who have written a lot of military science fiction, is it nice to have an anthology that showcases and flexes that diversity that we can see in the genre in terms of storytelling, themes,
4: science? I'll, I'll start. Oh. Go ahead, Mona Lisa. sorry.
6: Uh, I was gonna say, I, I think that all stories are about people no matter what genre that they're in. And that's the thing that um, I, I like to focus on. So for me, the genre isn't so much the thing as the characters, the genre is more or less the setting. I mean, I realize that there's other things that go into it, but for me, stories are always about characters.
3: I agree with that and I write from the same angle. Um, I write about relationships a lot. Uh, Mona Lisa was one of the first people to read uh, some of my draft concepts for this. Um, So I I focus on relationships and I layer technology and the military environment on top of that. Mine's a weird twisted love triangle with some robots and some helicopters and things like that over top of it. So I, I totally agree with that, it's people first.
2: Sean or Phillip?
4: So the, the thing I liked most about it was being able to experiment with potential futures from a geopolitical hey. standpoint and then throw people into the mix and see what happens, see how they react in terms of the, the character and, and the lengths that they'll go to save somebody and some of the, you know, horrific things that have to happen. And it it, you can go to really scary places if you just project where, uh, you know, things could, things could turn out based on the current set of technology and technological innovation, uh, current geopolitical trends, and, you know, just kind of what's in the art of the possible. So I really enjoyed it. And it also forced me to really focus on a specific topic. It wasn't like, you know, lots of candy. Like, oh, I can I can go and think about this. Oh, no, I want to go there. It's, it's much easier when you're constrained in writing because it really brings out the creativity while you're still focused on that one thread of coming up with a story that fits the theme of the anthology.
5: Yeah, you were, uh, Stephen, saying, you know, there's a lot of layers to your story. And I think, you know, that's, that's true of all the stories that I've read so far. Uh, especially yours, Sean, there's a lot of layers <laughs> in there to the point where, like, it was it was very obvious that you had done research and that was, or at least had a wealth of background experience to draw from because you had all these, you know, acronyms that, that that made sense for all of these different devices. And um, and one of the things that was a little um, amazing to me was, you know, the, the entire point of or I guess the technology behind my story is this uh, nuclear powered probe that can uh, tunnel through the ice and I was reading yours and it's like you had a nuclear powered probe that was tunneling through like rock and dirt and stuff and I'm like that's really amazing that two minds can you know come up with the same technology that doesn't even really exist and that's
4: to give yeah to give full credit (laughs) where credit is due T.C. so that's so that's the part of it was a subterrane so T.C. McCarthy had a whole series back in 2010 where they had subterranean and I don't know if they were nuclear powered but when I looked and looked at the research the Russians or the Soviets had worked on one in like 1972 so I went and you know delved into well exactly what would that look like sorry i didn't mean to interrupt but uh i i appreciate that because i felt bad i called TC in advance i'm like hey man I, I, is it okay <laughs> if i like take your idea and play with it he's just like go that's ahead cool. run with it
5: yeah and i didn't even i wasn't even aware of those um the subterrines but yeah it's it's interesting you and that's what i love about sci-fi the most and it's that's really open eye-opening for me writing military sci-fi is you know I tend to think of and uh, I guess in the, the shoes of a, a futurist you know sci-fi is great for coming up with all of these wealth out technologies that could in one one day actually come to pass um, and you know they could be the future um, and with military sci-fi that future can almost be scary um, you know you think about technologies that would come into the future well for warfare you can't you can't avoid thinking about what kind of technologies could be used. Um, so it's it can be both scary and um, eye opening.
3: And I think you're bringing up an interesting point, Philip. And uh, uh, General Hogan, uh, Major General Ret- retired uh, Stephen Hogan, wrote the forward for this, and he talks about like funding streams and how technology comes about. Um, I mean, obviously you need somebody to pay for research. And I know that's, that's a qualm for a lot of scientists. Like, where do I get the funding for my research? So he talks about in the forward, like a lot of advancements are made you know, on civil war battlefields. How do we, how do we keep pain at a minimum for these people? How do we feed them? How do we resupply them? Um, and I mean, would we have rocket science if we didn't have rockets to kill other people? Probably not. I mean, most of our uh, rocket scientists were stolen from Germany after World War II. Um, so that's how we got to the moon, is rocket scientists from Germany. Um, so I, I think you bring up a good uh, interplay. I mean, there's the interplay in the military between business and military staff, where we take terms from each other and concepts from each other. But we also, um, science relies a lot of the time on governments for funding, and what our governments most interested in is um, warfare a lot of the time. So Necessary evil but it does it does result in a lot of scientific advance
6: and our scientists are better than your scientists
3: that's true
2: <laughs> you both kind of touch on something that's been present with this anthology and i in addition I, sean patrick Hazlitt's most recent weird world war anthology is that that you can touch on headlines and technology even without intending to especially with as much as drones and robots and warfare always attract headlines. I mean, just past week alone, we had a big story break about uh, some military contractor pitching crowd control drones to the police that use tasers and stuff for crowd control. And then sometimes you have uh, a World War Anthology drop as Russia invades the Ukraine. And, sometimes you have all these well-researched stories and the various places we go in the future and sometimes even as the anthology is being put together, sometimes the headlines get ahead of them, like with base renaming. I guess what's...
4: Still not over yet. Still not over yet. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's going to be for
4: Fort Gavin. Still possible. Right, we,
2: we can only hope. I mean, Fort Liberty is one step above Fort Hall. But... That is, uh, it's interesting to see the ways that the sci-fi stories make the jump from the book page to the front page and how some of the strange ways they can do that.
5: And I think that's well, the, the trick for futurists is doing enough research in the present to try to predict the future. And so, you know, when things like that happen, sometimes it's not entirely coincidence, it's People sitting down reading those headlines, but also, you know, reading the, um, the articles and, and really the in-depth stuff behind a lot of the geopolitical uh, landscape and making a prediction where it can go, not just with politics, but with, with technology.
4: And to your to your point, Sean, the Chinese have taken note of this because they looked at what American authors were writing in the you know the 30s 40s 50s 60s and 70s, and then they saw that we put a man on the moon and saw how it inspired a future generation of scientists. So the Chinese have taken note of that and are actually encouraging and investing in that. So as an example, if you look at the I guess the next um, you know WorldCon, there's going to be one in Chengdu. The Chinese are Realizing that if they encourage science fiction, it could help inspire, like you know, like as it did in the United States, a future generation of scientists and then lead to technological dominance. I just wish our politicians were as thoughtful as that. Not that I'm trying to give the Chinese a compliment, but um, it's a smart thing to do. I wish we would do the same.
2: Anybody from the DOD who may be listening, yes, Spain does accept checks. <laughs> but that is... An interesting point is that you're right. It's strange to see some of the ways that sci-fi makes the jump into the real world and even real world conflicts. But at least one thing that has been on the more positive side of things is that Robo Soldiers was one of the books we sent out in all of our Memorial Day care packages. And it's been really nice hearing what some of the folks out on the front lines and stuck on grunt duty think about. (laughs) <laughs> a lot of our stories. And I guess with two veterans and two genre authors here, what's it like knowing that uh, something you wrote strikes a chord with people out there on the front lines?
3: So I can speak to that. Um, my deployments in the Navy, um, you know, I, I, there's a lot of boredom, there's a lot of hard work. And um, kind of going insane for a little while while you're deployed, but I read a lot while I was deployed. Um, and, and some of those books were just like my mental escape from just this monotony of being stuck in the Mediterranean on this cold, dark solar ship, just doing this nonsense. It's not nonsense, but doing the things I was doing. Um, so I, I really appreciate that. I went to our ship's library a lot and, um, I read almost nonstop for, for my deployments. So, um, i I think if i can entertain somebody that's deployed that's really valuable and meaningful to me um, as much as anything else that i do um if i can make somebody else's life better i really appreciate that
4: yeah i think it's fantastic that you sent those books overseas and i i hope i you know they enjoy it and i don't depress them um although there is a risk (laughs) there's a risk of that uh you need to come but, with a warning label, Sean. Yeah, but again, I guess there's some education about the uh, the Chinese 36 stratagems and you know all that all that good stuff. So um, I, I think it's a I think it's a great thing that you're doing that, and I hope I hope sincerely hope that they enjoy the stories and and really get tuned in to Bain Books and and what Bain Books is about because I don't think there's any other publishing company like it.
6: Sorry those are mine
3: is that corgi-san
6: that is corgi-san he's sounding the alarm because his daddy is coming home
2: oh
3: come Sorry. on corgi and not show it
2: on camera
6: <laughs> uh on camera maybe next time
2: hold <laughs> you to it but...
6: okay
4: Well, um, I guess- don't worry my, my, my three year old son almost gate crashed uh, you probably saw like a little flash of like a human head but uh he was thwarted by my wife thank god so you're not the only one. He,
6: he gets very loud. He does. <laughs> but so, th- as, so to answer your question as an author, um, one of the things you struggle with is this idea that you have to be really, really mean to your characters, right? Because that's, that's how they grow and that's how you make stories and kind of balancing out not to be too mean about it. And one of the reasons I call this story resilience was um, because I wanted to send the message that, no matter how bad things can get, they are survivable, that there is something after that, you know, it, so even though it's dark, it had a happy ending. And um, that, that was, that was just a very important thing for me to convey.
3: Yeah, I think that you you speak to themes that are um you know, really important to a lot of of service members, and sorry to to interrupt where you're going, Philip, but you, the mental health aspect in the military is a huge thing. It's something that a lot of civilians don't see. I know you see shows and movies where people are struggling with PTSD from combat and things like that, but things like sexual assault trauma, um, you know, those mental health issues aren't always combat related. There are a lot of things that we deal with from being in, in weird environments with weird people um, in all parts of the world that, that stick with you in ways that they don't for a lot of civilians. So you got to an aspect of military life that is very true to life and is important. Um, it's an important conversation to have in a lot of ways and I appreciated it. Um, sorry to interrupt Philip and I'll I'll step off the soapbox now.
1: No, I think
3: that's, that's a great segue to what I was gonna say. You
5: know, everyone, has different perspectives, whether you're a soldier or civilian, uh, whether you go through PTSD, whether you don't. And I think, you know, especially for troops, and again, I'm not speaking from experience, but, um, perspective is a great thing to have. You need to sometimes, yeah, having a little escape, read something maybe besides military sci-fi, maybe you read some military sci-fi, but getting perspective, whether it's, you know, a different point of view, whether it's you know, an outcome that you wouldn't have thought of um, or, you know, um, how different people cope with PTSD, it's all educational in one form or another, uh, whether it's technology, whether it's mental health or um, whether it's, you know, just learning about um, perspective of, of war from, you know, a scientist who's has nothing to do with war and has, you know, um, really no plans to ever do anything with war. So. Yeah, perspective.
2: Well, to circle back to something you brought up earlier, Philip, uh, when you mentioned uh, getting started on the story in the 12th month and the 11th month, I, I'm the same way. No criticism. Everybody has a different approach to writing for these anthologies. If you guys don't mind, uh, let's go a little bit into your writing processes. Uh, How did you go about writing your story for this? Start with you, Stephen.
3: Okay, so I don't really write stories unless it's something where I'm driving or working out, and I start getting this weird thing in my head that has to come out somewhere. So I guess the anthology is kind of a result of a weird pun and and a story that was just gestating in my brain and had to come out somewhere. It needed a vehicle. so. I work with some people and I made a vehicle for it. Um, sometimes I have a process for things and I try to write, but that's a lot more labored. It's a lot more intensive and it feels like more work than having something that has to escape and I have to make a, a package for it for the real world. So my process is, um, I guess, spontaneous combustion in my brain That's what I do. Sean?
4: So I'm, if you had to put me on the kind of the, the plotter pantser axis, I am an extreme plotter because if I try to pants, it'll just be like a sentence fragment and then I don't know where it's going. But I, I start out, think about an overall premise, and then I kind of treated it like I wrote. This isn't exactly the case, but it's almost like I'm writing news articles, right, where um, you know, think of like some Wall Street Journal news articles where you're talking about resources and, um, you know, things that are critical to your economy, and that becomes the motivation for certain nation states. And then I think about what current trends are and what that implies for the history of, you know, how a conflict could emerge between, say, the Chinese and the US and how Russia might be involved. And then, I iterate a little bit and then I come up with a character who is gonna live in that world. And then I find a motivation for that character and then I'll write it uh, and it'll be terrible. And then I'll rearrange things and rewrite it and rewrite it. And then I probably do anywhere from 10 to 15 drafts. And by the time you know it's right is when you come up with an idea when it's all done that links everything up so the way that i did that is very late in the process i discovered uh you know it's not sun Tzu, but it's all something in the same tradition which was these 39 stratagems and i noticed that everything that the chinese were doing um in my story tied back to one of them so i was able to reference it and give it a little bit more of a verisimilitude at the very end and it didn't take that much to add but for me it, it requires an intense polishing process. The first thing I put on paper is not great. So the the advice I would give to writers who are just starting out is just get it on paper, and then the real writing comes in the editing process. At least for me.
5: Philip, yeah, I would I would definitely consider myself more of a plotter than a, a pantser. Um, For me, you know, all of those, you know, those eleven months—not all of them were spent, you know, just trying to find a story. I kind of spent a lot of that time, uh, yeah, searching for original idea to kind of spark the the inspiration. Um, And it it helps when you have, when you've been doing this for a while, and you have a folder buried in your laptop called ideas, um, and you just go in there and you just start start scrolling down and. Um, I had to cross-reference several things or cross-track several things because I wrote them down quite a while ago and I didn't even remember doing the research that I apparently did. Um, And one of those ideas was, yeah, for for a NASA probe, you know, capable of tunneling through ice. Um, So that idea has, you know, been in the folder for a long time, but I couldn't just start writing once I saw that, you know, if you started, Writing immediately when you have the idea, uh, without doing the legwork, without doing the research, I mean that's that's how you end up with with stories that, you know, you have inaccurate science, you have uh, plot holes, you have people, you know, doing the ex machina trying to get out of that plot hole with some um, with some unrealistic science. So yeah there's you know anything hard sci-fi you have to do the research and so I found the cool idea first the setting um the character came last for me I really needed to I really needed to know the world that I was writing in first, um like Sean said earlier you know you have to you have to find the thing and then show how people react to it, um, whether it's political or you know technology um so, yeah, it was just a matter of creating the setting first, looking into all the politics of the region, what could happen, and then really getting into the, the gritty science detail, you know, making sure, you know, if there is ever uh, uh, scientists out there working on, uh, you know, small modular reactors, that they're not just going to roll their eyes and throw the book across the room as soon as they, they look at my story. So, yeah, just uh doing the research, making it if not you know accurate, then at least plausible and then, once I have everything down i I get the character I put him in that situation and see how he would react, and I don't often know how he will react until he's moving through uh the setting that I've provided, so that's the only kind of uh, uh panzer type uh work I do is just letting the character move through the setting.
2: Mona Lisa?
6: I'm an extreme pantser, uh, for lack of a better term. And I almost always start with the character. Um, and I, so I had this idea about the, uh, Carly Engel being a military air traffic controller in Germany because at the time I was uh, learning German so that I could understand German musical theater without subtitles. Uh, so I let all of these little things that are going on in my life sometimes intrude um, with little details in what I'm writing. But the research for this was actually something that I had done for another story. Uh, so it, it came in the form of the difference between an intelligent agent and an actual artificial intelligence and machine learning and, and the different levels uh, that those are. So my understanding has always been that the our idea of an AI is oh at least 100 and 150 years off. It is not as close as, as people like to think it is and there's reasons for that. So I took some of the information that I had, um, I had done research for another story um, to come up with this idea of this AI implant. And it was very, very tempting for me. I was constantly having to go back and uh, kind of bring myself back to, okay, I'm writing military SF, so not a romance because I really, really, really wanted to turn this into a romance. I wanted her to fall in love with the guy inside of her head. Um, But I figured maybe that wasn't, uh, that probably wouldn't be a genre appropriate in this case.
2: Always next time. And for any aspiring authors listening in, just goes to show no wrong approach so long as you finish. And I guess to go back again, to touch on everyone's stories and the fact that We have some stories that tap into the real world or that might connect with people differently as current events unfold. If you could have readers take anything away from your story, what would that be? And counterpoint, if there's one thing from your story that you hope doesn't come to pass, what would that be? Start with you, Stephen.
3: So something to take away from my story, um, and it's something that I I thought of a lot um, because I've been in a lot of different team environments where you get close to people um, and you get to know all their faults. Um, I I think the people taking care of very, I don't want to say high level responsibilities, but the things that you don't want to deal with on a daily basis, um, Jack Nicholson saying you can't handle the truth, those, those things are done by people with flaws. Um, and, and you get into teams where after a vetting process, you're working with people with flaws. They're not the perfect, you know, robot soldier that's, that's there defending the world with no moral flaws or intellectual flaws without some form of mental illness or, or defects. Um, I've got friends that have some physical disabilities that, that can fly helicopters because we work around things, um, or people with you know, they've got some severe depression or, or some things going on in their lives that they don't like to talk about, but we work together and overcome those things. Um, and that's part of my story. Um, I would say the thing that I hope doesn't come to pass is um, billionaires with private robot armies, because that would be dangerous. So that's like problem number one in the story is this guy that can, um, and I talk about Spanish control, because that's a big thing in the military. Um, we talk about, you can't really effectively influence more than four to five people in a direct line of command so i get into the flaws of this guy trying to control this giant robot army with just like one single point where he can tell them to do anything as an autocrat um and it doesn't really work uh on some levels and the and the good guys in the story kind of exploit that um so there are span of control laws that i talk about in the very beginning um with the guy that's the roboticist um you you can't legally in the world that i have uh control more than four to five robots without a human in the loop for a uh manned unmanned teaming environment so to speak human machine teaming um so i i hope that people don't get carried away and try to automate you know one person can control a hundred robot soldiers i think that's very dangerous i think robots are inherently amoral not immoral but amoral they don't have moral reasoning uh, inherent in their consciousness, no matter how you program them. So I hope that we take morality into account. Um, If we are programming machines to be efficient killers, if we're doing um, uh, hunter killer projects like things that DARPA works on, um, I hope that we we factor in human in the loop decision-making at all times. I think it's very important.
2: John?
4: So I'm going to shamelessly crib Sun Tzu. The first lesson is all warfare is based on deception. Um, my story, I think, definitely covers that in multiple ways. In terms of the... So that would be the you know, the key takeaway. The thing that I really, really hope doesn't come true is that's the weapon weaponization of uh, CRISPR viruses, things like that, because... Um, what people don't realize is the, technolo- the technological capacity to do this sort of like gene splicing and things like that. Um, it's actually already been done in 2018 by two Chinese scientists illegally. Um, but, you know, we are within the realm of possibility. And the fact, I don't know if this is a fact, but I haven't really seen anything that indicates there's been any sort of international treaty or anything like that to put the brakes on this stuff. So right now, it's um, it, it's something that could be exceptionally dangerous because CRISPR can be used in uh, beneficial ways as well. So anyway, that, that's the, that's the one thing that would you know should should keep me up at night, should keep DARPA up at night, should keep um, the Pentagon up at night. Um, yeah, that's where I would that's what I would say.
1: Philip.
5: Yeah, kind of piggybacking off something uh, Stephen was saying. um, You know, I I believe I have a a quote in my book. It's uh, civilization needs soldiers as much as scientists. And I I really, you know, being something that I wish readers would take away from that. But, um, you know, the, the issue of morality is, you know, a big one when it comes to designing the, you know, the future of warfare. And a big theme in my book is that there's never only one way to do something. There's, there's always another way. There's always alternatives. And, you know, I know it's a little hard for actual uh, soldiers when you have orders and um, you have to do uh, what you're told to, you know, within reason. Um, But, you know, just, just keep in mind that there's, there's always other options. It doesn't always have to be destruction and violence, you know, when, when there's, you know, nuclear arms at, at play, uh, then, you know, forward thinking and, and, you know, being able to, uh, you know, listen to the scientists and not just the soldiers for a solution is, is always a, a good go-to. And I guess that that plays into um, what I hope doesn't happen. Um, I hope that you know scientists and and the uh, the military are a lot more forward thinking about you know the the long term impacts of of what they do to uh, the environment. One, you know, especially with uh, radioactivity being what it is, you release any kind of radioactive substance that could hang around for. Really long time, even if it is in the middle of the Antarctic, and you know the Antarctic Treaty has expired, and no one's going to tell you you can't do it. Um, you know that's it's an environment that if it's polluted, it'll stay that way for thousands of years potentially. So,
6: yeah,
2: that's it. Mona Lisa.
6: Um, I hope that the thing that does come true is that um, people realize that everybody is an individual. And that the individual is the most important minority on earth and um, because of that things are going to work for them that are not going to work for for anybody else and vice versa and i think i think that's something that uh, people need to just um, really look at and understand as far as things that i'm hoping never come true are like the, the bad people winning however you want to kind of define that i have my own definition of it uh, and the the way that I put it in here, that the group that was uh, responsible for uh, all the bad things that happened to this character were the kind of people that, and I based them, I based them on the communists that I escaped from. And I don't ever want to have a world where my kids have to face what I did. Um, so that's, that's my hope is that those people never come to power.
2: The wish of every parent. So I guess to bring things to a close, uh everybody what are you working on at the moment and for all of our viewers and listeners at home if they want to
3: check out you or your work where can they go steven start the show uh so current projects i'm doing some research life experience kind of exposure stuff not something i'm going to talk about i think if i do another anthology or wherever this idea comes out it would be based in the future of medicine and maybe Human machine teaming and medicine. I want to learn more about that. It's fascinating to me. Um, so I'm getting some exposure in things, but not something I'm going to talk about publicly. Um, if, if people want to uh, look me up, I'm on Facebook. It's, I think, Stephen Lawson.338 is my Facebook profile. And I've got a, a free, because I'm a cheapskate, uh, WordPress blog at Stephen Lawson Stories dot wordpress.com which i update periodically um and it links to my amazon i've got a couple of um i've got a collection of short stories on there and a novel called walk away that i'm i'm pretty pleased with i like it um so that's where you can find more of my stuff on amazon and um, my blog
4: sean so i'm kind of working on three major projects right now so one is weird world war Three China. Which is similar to Weird World War Three, the original, except instead of the U.S. and Soviet Union, it's the U.S. and and China, uh, the future conflict. So that's an anthology. Uh, the second thing I'm working on is a novel, uh, tentatively called Wormwood Down, and it's based on very loosely on the the Ten Thousand Xenophon, Xenophon, Xenophon's Ten Thousand, which was a, a Greek group of mercenaries that uh you know were stuck in persia and had to fight their way home only in this case there's a, a extraterrestrial object that crashes into the russian far east a team from delta is sent in to recover it and at the same time the chinese won it so you have a chinese incursion into the far east and then you have whatever's in the object uh lots of hard science fiction fun and uh darkness there uh but it's bane so you know at least hopefully it'll be bane so uh you know i have to have to let somebody live we'll see it'll be a little bit hard for me and then the third thing i'm working on is i started a youtube channel called through the glass darkly with sean and what i do is i interview writers uh i uh, uh, i also cover geopolitics and then anything where the paranormal intersects with um, military policy. So if you look through the history, there's actually a lot of weird stuff that our government did, particularly the remote viewing program. I've interviewed um, a remote viewer who was part of that program, Stargate, Flames, Scan8, and a number of other, Sunstreak, a number of other programs that the DIA did. So anyway, uh, definitely check that out. And then you can find me on seanpatrickhazlett.com. And then you can get... Um, my books, particularly Weird World War III and Weird World War IV on Amazon or anywhere else books are sold.
1: Bill,
5: I have a, a number of books that I've been uh, working on and editing over the years. Um, I, I really, um, until this uh, project that Stephen asked me to do, I hadn't uh, done anything short, uh, novelette or shorter um, in a while. Um, so I'm mainly working on long-form long uh, science fiction, mostly hard sci-fi. Um, I have uh, one book uh, it's called uh, tentatively uh, upended. It is complete. I'm trying to get that published. It's I think in Bain's slush pile somewhere, so if you want to expedite that, that'd be great. Um, but yeah, um, so who knows where that's going to get published, but I do intend for it to be a series. It is. Um, it is hard sci-fi um, about a um, a scientist who gets caught up in really an experiment gone wrong. There's a uh, um, an accident in a laboratory, and uh, a mile everything within a mile radius is made um, completely weightless, um, including himself. And so it's a matter of uh, him kind of getting out of that situation and going through the aftermath and. Learning that hey NASA wants to you know put a lot of this weightless material to use and get up into space very easily um, when you know gravity is no longer an issue um, and so I have stories planned I'm halfway through or a third of the way through the second book um, they'll be you know going up into to orbit and then um, yeah and then to the moon and Venus, and so on, so it's going to be a series, and I hope that, uh, uh, yeah, I'll get it published eventually. Other than that, a couple other novel ideas that I'm just starting to outline. Um, uh, readers can find me at uh, pakramer.com. I don't update up that a lot, but I'll I'll uh, post occasional news.
2: And Mona Lisa?
6: Uh, Mona Lisa's working on the third book in the Ravages of Honor uh, trilogy, and Uh, Since I'm stuck on that, I decided to go ahead and start another space opera, and this one's going to be a little bit different. Uh, I'm thinking about adapting some Westerns, so I've got some inspiration from uh, some John Wayne Westerns. Um, And Despair Bear and Corgisan are both going to be robots uh, in this uh, Serenity um, Firefly kind of space opera. So that's what I'm working on currently. I'm going to be at LibertyCon, and I will also be presenting my viewpoint class at LibertyCon. So if anybody wants to come and say hi, uh, I would I would love to to see them there. Marvelous. And I'm on I'm on the internet, monalisafoster.com. dot <laughs> Sean Hasler,
3: are you going to LibertyCon too? Sorry to interrupt.
4: Yeah. Yes. Provided. I uh today I have to buy a plate ticket and get a uh a hotel room so that's gonna be that's gonna be my fun for today
3: okay I won't be there I know Martin Shoemaker will be there but you've got at least two and a half writers if Sean makes it um he's he's half in the box half out of the box um but you got at least Mona Lisa and Martin Shoemaker and maybe Sean Hazlitt that'll be there from the anthology at LiveryCon
4: TC is going to be there too
3: okay TC McCarthy um awesome
2: to our guests, thank you for joining us today. And to all of our viewers and listeners, thank you for joining us for the Bane 3 Radio Hour. You can find a copy of Robo Soldiers, thank you for your servos, on Bane.com, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever fine books are sold. And we do hope you check it out with all haste. In the meantime, have a wonderful day, and we'll see you on somewhere in the bookstores.
1: And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony worlds Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens, not from space, but on the ground with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a cobra.
0: It's dead simple, Bai told them, gesturing to the ceiling barely two meters above their heads. You first key your targeting lock on the spot where you intend to hit, and then jump, giving your body a backward motion as you do so. He bent his knees and straightened them, simultaneously arching his back. Then just relax, and let the computer run your servos. Try not to fight it, by the way. You'll just strain your muscles and make it harder for your subconscious to adjust to having something else in charge of your body. Questions? Hmm? All right. Aldred? Target lock. Go. One by one, they all performed the ceiling jump that had been their first introduction to Cobra abilities those four long weeks ago. Johnny had thought himself adequately prepared. But when his turn came, he found out otherwise. Nothing. Not even the now familiar servo enhancement effect could quite compare with the essential decoupling of body and mind that the automatic reflexes entailed. Fortunately, the maneuver was over so quickly that he didn't have time to feel more than a very brief panic before his feet were back on the floor, and his muscles returned to his control. Only later did he realize that Bai had probably started them with the ceiling jump for precisely that reason. They went through the exercise five times each, and with each flawless jump, Johnny's anxiety and general feeling of weirdness eased, until he was feeling almost comfortable with his new co-pilot. As he should have expected, though, he wasn't allowed to feel comfortable for long.
1: That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Sean C.W. Korsgaard, Stephen Lawson, Sean Patrick Hazlitt, Philip Kramer, and Mona Lisa Foster. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Afshirirad coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.